The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 38, 17-22. For I am about to fall, and my pain is constantly with me, so I confess my iniquity. I am anxious because of my sin, but my enemies are vigorous and powerful. Many hate me for no reason. Those who repay evil for good attack me for pursuing good. Lord, do not abandon me. My God, do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, my Lord, my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Joe. There's a scene from the Lord of the Rings where the good guys approach a tower holding Sauron, an evil wizard. Before they reach the tower, Gandalf, the good wizard, warns them that Sauron will try to deceive them. Even though they've just defeated his army at great loss of life, he will try to seduce them with flattery and sweet talk. And he tries. He speaks with such a measured, velvety tone that they begin to fall under his enchantment. But something happens to break the enchantment, and they see him for who he truly is, a defeated, spiteful enemy. Though the story is not intended to be an allegory, Sormon reminds me of sin and temptation. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, sin is a defeated, spiteful enemy. But that's not how it presents itself to us. It seduces and flatters us. It promises glory and power. It tries to enchant us with lies and half-truths. In a, in a moment like this, the moment when we're sitting in church, we, we know what sin is. But outside of here, when temptation strikes and we hear sin's seductive voice, we easily forget. Sin promises so much but delivers so little. Like a 16-year-old boy standing at a buffet, we gorge ourselves on plate after plate of sin, and only much later do we realize how terrible it's made us feel. In the New Testament book of James, sin is pictured like a fishing lure. Behind the tasty worm is a terrible hook ready to catch us and kill us. Have you thought about how often sin tries to deceive you, right? So you're tempted to just go off on that person who mistreated you because it'll make you feel so much better, and then hours later you think, man, was that stupid. You think more food or more drink will help you cope with what has been a terrible day, but then you feel ashamed because you kept eating or you kept drinking. Five minutes of escape on TikTok or YouTube turns into two hours of wasted time and you kick yourself for just what a waste of time. A small lie becomes a second lie to cover the first lie and pretty soon you're anxious that they're going to figure out you haven't been honest with them. Vending about your parents is like itching a bug bite. At first it feels good. But then it grows more and more irritating until you just can't handle it anymore. We sin 
because we think sinning will make us happier, it'll make us feel better, it will be worth it. But it's not. It's a trap. We're the person in the horror movie who enters the creepy house by ourselves. Everyone watching knows how it will end. But still we go in. In Psalm 38, we find David lamenting his own sin. In fact, most of the psalm is a description of how his sin has impacted him. All of the negative effects it's had on his life. This psalm is like an expose, one of those Friday night investigative news shows. It tells us the the truth about sin. It does for us what Gandalf did for the other good guys. It warns us about what sin will do, what it's really like, so that we'll both flee from it in moments of temptation and confess it in moments of failure. So in this psalm, sin is exposed and so is the grace of God. What dominates Psalm 38 is the truth about sin. Before we look at the truth about sin, let me quickly define it. Sin is any time we disobey the will of God, any failure to love the Lord supremely or to love our neighbors ourselves. In Psalm 36, we define sin as, as trespassing the boundaries of God's law. Sin is always defined in relation to God, specifically His will for us disclosed in His word to us. So what's the truth about sin? First, sin deserves punishment. Sin deserves punishment. We all know this. We know that when someone breaks the law, they deserve to be punished. And we know this extends beyond written laws. When someone reaps what they sow, we think it's just. So when that young punk cuts in line at the amusement park, and then he gets stuck halfway up the hill, everyone looks at him and laughs and says, he got what he deserved. Why? Because we all share a deeply embedded sense of justice. This is one reason why it's impossible to be a genuine, unhypocritical relativist, to think all truth is relative, to not believe in some sort of foundational shared belief of right and wrong. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that if your neighbor does not believe in an absolute standard of right and wrong, then go up to him and punch him in the nose. Then you'll see what he really believes. Now, we may disagree on what we think is right or wrong, or even what the standard for right and wrong is, but it is impossible to live without believing some things are right and some things are wrong. And by extension, then, when we do those wrong things, we deserve some sort of consequence. The law of reaping and sowing is woven into the very nature of our world. If you sow evil, you should reap some consequence for your evil action. Well, this is where the psalm begins. David acknowledges that his sinful actions deserve punishment and discipline. He says in verse 1, Lord, do not punish me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand is pressed down on me. Now, he's not pretending he's innocent or even claiming that he should get away with it. He's saying, Lord, I'm asking for some mercy. He doesn't dispute that the outcome of his sin is judgment. He's also aware in verse 2, he's begun to experience some of those consequences for sin. Now, now the reason David starts with judgment is because this is the scariest result of sin. This is the big one. The righteous and just judge of the universe has decreed a certain way to live in his world, and he has warned us that 
failure to follow his law brings terrifying judgment. It's easy for us to ignore this. It's easy for us to overlook this, to believe the lie that the serpent whispered to Eve in the garden, to pretend that we can get away with sin or we can sin and get away with it. But we can't. Justice wins in the end. Evil does bring judgment. Sin will be met with punishment. Here's the second truth about sin. Sin drains the life out of us. Sin drains the life out of us. So verses 3 through 10 read like a depressing poem, like, like the poem an English teacher would like. Right? It's filled with metaphors and analogies about the debilitating effects of unconfessed sin. Now, in these verses, David connects sin and sickness together. He doesn't clearly explain the connection, but there clearly is a connection. So let me just suggest three possibilities. It could be one of these. It could be a combination of all three. It could be that his tortured conscience is producing physical effects in his body, like how guilt can keep us from sleeping and make us edgy and irritable, and night after night of not sleeping well makes us prone to sickness and weakness and bad health. Or there could just simply be some physical consequences from his sinful choices, like a sexually transmitted disease, or a broken fist because he got so angry he punched a wall, or so drunk that he fell over. Or he he could experience some sickness or injury that lays him up for a period of time so that he's forced to confront his actions. If you ever heard John Evison talk about how God brought him to faith in Jesus Christ, it was this. A shoulder injury kept him from working, and so he was forced to finally sit still and confront his thoughts. He was forced to think deeply about his life and his spiritual condition, and that sickness and injury were messengers from God to get a hold of him, to grab his attention. So whatever the connection The presence of unconfessed sin in David's life was wreaking havoc on him both physically and spiritually. These past four Wednesday nights during our summer study, we looked at what it meant to be, what it means to be truly human, that we are both body and soul. We're body and soul, but we're not two people, we're one people. God meshed our bodies and souls into one person, so what happens to us spiritually affects us physically. Listen to how David describes the physical effects of his sin. Verse 3, he says, There is no soundness in my body because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. So sin is ravaging his health. Then he says he feels like he is simultaneously drowning in his sin and being buried alive by it. Verse 4, He says, for my iniquities, another word for sin, have flooded over my head. They are a burden too heavy for me to bear. Sin is not making him happy, it's crushing him. It's not improving the quality of his life, it's eating away at him. He's suffocating under his sin. Verse 5, he says, my wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am bent over and brought very low all day long. I go around in mourning, for my insides are full of burning pain, and there is no soundness in my body. I am faint and severely crushed. I groan because of the anguish of my heart. He summarizes what sin is doing for him in verse 10. 
Listen closely to what he says here. Sin has the greatest marketing department in the universe. It never tells you the truth. Sin invites you to the party, but the party's a funeral, and it wants you in the casket. Here's the truth about what sin will do to you. Verse 10, my heart races, my strength leaves me, and even the light of my eyes has faded. Sin drains the life out of you. Are you experiencing this right now? Like, don't lie to yourself. Don't ignore what you're experiencing. Are you living with unconfessed sin? Are you weighed down by your foolish choices? Are you being crushed by your iniquity? Is your heart racing? Do you feel weak? See, often we look for physical solutions, when we should be asking if what we feel is a result of the sinful choices we're making. No, I'm not suggesting that every physical symptom is because of a sinful choice. We know that's not the case. We know that the curse of sin affects us physically, but we we know that every physical symptom is not because of a sinful choice, a sinful decision. But we are probably too quick to ignore the possibility that what we are feeling physically could be tied to unconfessed sin. Could the weakness of your body, your lack of energy, your inability to sleep, your anxiety, your lack of concentration, could it be the product of unconfessed sin? See, that's a question you should be asking. Sometimes the best sleeping pill is a clear conscience. Here's the third truth about sin. Sin destroys relationships. This has been evident ever since humanity's first sin. What happened? Man and women sin. God comes in to pronounce the curse on them for their sin. And what does Adam do? Points a finger. Right? It's her fault. Okay, they're kicked out of the garden. They have a son. They have a second son. Talk about sibling rivalry. Their first son kills their second son. The effects of sin are felt strongly in the alienation we feel with other people. David reveals how sin has impacted his relationship with two groups of people. His friends and relatives have withdrawn from him, and his enemies have seen his distress as an opportunity to bring him even further harm. Look at verse 11. He says, my loved ones and friends stand back from my affliction. My relatives stand at a distance. Those who intend to kill me set traps, and those who want to harm me threaten to destroy me. They plot treachery all day long. Listen, you cannot sin in isolation. Sin is like an earthquake. You, you don't have to be at the epicenter to feel the effects. The aftershocks are felt long after and further away than we realize. Take pornography. That's a sin that seems to be private, usually done just one person by themselves. Does looking at pornography affect only the one sinning? No. Well, there's the person being objectified, the human being made in God's image who's being treated like a a possession, an object, a piece of meat. So certainly they're involved. There's a current or future spouse 
whose relationship is going to be affected because of the effects of that sin. There may be children whose father is growing more and more callous. There are friendships that grow distant because of a secret life. On and on it goes as the effects of sin spread. In verse 11, David describes himself like a person who has contracted leprosy. Now, leprosy was the name for a skin disease that was highly contagious. If you contracted it, you had to immediately leave the city and live in a leper colony. And so from that point forward, you had to stay away from anyone who is healthy. Just imagine for a second, in an instant, being cut off from all of your family and friends Everywhere you go, you've got to yell, unclean, unclean, to warn people to stay away from you. And you're doomed to live and suffer and then die alone. David's like, that's, that's how I feel because of my sin. Do you want healthy relationships? Do you want deep, lasting friendships? Do you want people to walk with you through joy and sorrow? Like, this doesn't come... From hiding your sin, it comes from confessing it. But see, this is what we think. We think that if anyone knew, if I was truly honest about my sin, then everyone would reject me. But that is not true with genuine Christians. Honesty about sin brings compassion and acceptance. Because in our sin, Jesus loves us, we learn, and he empowers us to love each other more. The more we see each other's weakness, the more we see each other's failure. Hidden sin is like a force field that pushes people away from you. Here's the fourth and final truth about sin. Sin deadens our affections. Sin deadens our affections. Sin has robbed David of his health and his relationships, and it has left him feeling empty and useless, dead and cold, not knowing what to say or even what to listen to. Verse 13, he says, I am like a deaf person I do not hear. I'm like a speechless person who does not open his mouth. I'm like a man who does not hear and has no arguments in his mouth. Because sin wounds the soul, left untreated, it forms calluses around the heart. The more we hold on to sin, the less we feel. Like addicts, we have an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing return. An ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing return. So I want, you to, I want you to picture an empty pitcher. So in my fridge, there's almost always a pitcher of unsweet tea. But sometimes I pour the glass, and there's this moment of abject terror when I'm like, oh, I'm out. Thankfully, it doesn't take long to make some more, but once in a while, it's empty. So picture with me my empty pitcher. So if you, if, you, if you were to take pebbles, stones, and you were to start to put them in my pitcher, what happens? Well, there becomes less room for the tea, right? The presence of these pebbles actually displaces how much tea can fit in the pitcher. Well, this is what happens. Sin is sort of like pebbles placed in our heart in our soul. And, and everyone that's put in and left there squeezes out space for joy, squeezes out pace, space for delight and for meaning and for satisfaction and fulfillment, right? Sin is sort of like Novocaine for the soul. It deadens our affections. 
there's a later psalm where we find a warning about idol worship. And that's, it's not really about the object. It's just about living for anything other than God. But, but I want you to hear this because it, it portrays very clearly the deadening effect of sin on the soul. So it says this in Psalm 115. It says, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. Right? And so what this was was some sort of object that was carved and placed in a place of prominence inside the house or outside the house. Pretend maybe a shrine was built for it. But it wasn't really about the object, right? The object was representative of what they thought was some sort of god. And so I might have a, a, a carved statue of a goddess of fertility. And what I do is I say, I want to have children. I want to have healthy children. So I, I, I bow before this object because this is the way to, to talk to the god of fertility to get the blessing of, 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 chi- of children. Or, or maybe I've got a carved one that's supposed to be the god of sun or rain, and I, I want good weather because I'm dependent upon the crops I grow. And so I set it there, and I bow before it, and I pray, and I do things. I light things. Maybe I offer some sort of, give it some sort of sacrifice, even though it can't do anything with it. But I'm like, it's really to the god it represents. And we think, well, that's, I mean, that's so, we don't have idols. We do. We just don't carve them out of stones. They, they look a little different, another topic for another time, but anytime we put anything in front of God. So it says their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. See, we become like what we worship. We become like what we live for. So if we live for things that are empty and shallow, then we become increasingly empty and shallow. Sin limits our ability to love and live and think and act deeply. Unconfessed sin makes you a shallow person. I've heard people many times look back on their life and think about a time in their life when they when they were living for something other than the Lord, right? So they were living for an idol. It might have been a job, might have been success in something. Maybe it was a college scholarship. Maybe it was a a particular sport. Maybe it was whatever it was, this object, this activity, this goal was what they pursued. And looking back and reflecting upon it, I've heard the same thing said so many times, something like this, while I was doing that, I felt empty inside. I felt hollow. That's what sin produces. Sin never makes a person more alive. Since it drains the life out of us, it deadens our capacity for deep joy, for genuine affection, for refreshing honesty. Though the truth about sin dominates Psalm 38, it's not the only thing we see. We also find the truth about God. Four times in the psalm, David directly addresses God. So in the midst of his sad reflection on what sin has done to him, we see glimmers of faith and hope that grow stronger the more he remembers who God is. So as he's thinking about his sin, David remembers that God is merciful to sinners. Why does David pray? David prays because he knows that God shows mercy to sinners. That's reflected in the first verse where he pleads with God to spare him from his anger and wrath. He knows he deserves justice, but he begs God to temper that discipline with mercy. Verse 1, Lord, do not punish me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. 
He's counting on the mercy of God. Now, how does he know God is merciful? Because he's meditated on God's word. He knows that when God commanded Adam and Eve not to sin, and they sinned anyway, that God came and in their discipline, he said, he not only clothed them, but he said, I'm going to provide a savior and he will restore all the things that were just broken. David knows that God said to his people, I want, I want you to build a special place, and in that place I'll have priests, and you can come before those priests, and those priests will intercede on your behalf so that your sin can be forgiven. David himself would have chosen and brought lambs to that tabernacle, to that place, and he would have offered that lamb. The lamb would have been killed, the blood poured out, so that David's sin would be covered. David knows that God continues to make ways for sinners to come to him and receive forgiveness. He knows God is merciful. David also remembers that God is aware of our struggles. He's aware of our struggles. Look at verse 9. Lord, my every desire is in front of you. My sighing is not hidden from you. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows our struggles. He knows what frustrates us, what disappoints us, what makes us tick. All of our desires are laid out in front of him like a diary. He reads what is written deep down inside us. Now, this is encouraging because we struggle to understand ourselves. I know that I often don't understand my own desires, and I, I get frustrated with how inconsistent I am when my desires, they don't just fluctuate day to day, they'll fluctuate hour to hour. When I don't know my own mind, God knows it. In fact, God knows me better than I know myself, and He still loves me. This may be the most shocking thing about the gospel, that God knows everything about me, and He loves me still. Brothers and sisters, God knows your deepest, darkest secret. He knows that thing that you have not and will not tell anyone else. He sees that thing that pops into your mind and discuss you. He knows it, and He still loves you. And the pain you feel, the pain you don't tell anyone about, the pain you can't vocalize, that all you can do is sigh and groan, He knows that too. Just this week, I was reading the early chapters of Exodus. Their God's people are enslaved in Egypt. They're being forced to, to build brick or make bricks so that these large structures can be built by the Egyptians. And sort of as a punishment, because God is beginning to deliver them through Moses, and because of that, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, right, he, he gets angry, and so he says to those in charge, God's people, he says, listen, I'm keeping the same quota of bricks, but I'm not giving them the supplies. So they have to go get the supplies themselves and still keep the quota. This is impossible. Basically saying, I'm changing the rules to things they can't do, and then we're going to whip them and beat them because they can't do this thing, which is not possible for them to do. Listen to what happens next in Exodus 2. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. It's a lesson there. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. 
God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites and God knew. Whatever is making you groan, even if it's the consequence of your bad decision-making, God hears. The sound of it ascends to God. He knows. And since you can't hide it from him, why not talk to him about it? Why not cry out to him for mercy since he's the only one who perfectly understands? David also remembers God is going to answer our cries. God is going to answer our cries. When our cries turn to confession, there is only one way God can respond. Because of his character and because of his promises, he must answer with forgiveness. Of this we can be confident. Can you hear David's confidence? Notice how the psalm has, has sort of grown. His confidence throughout it has grown because he begins with this desperate cry for mercy. Please don't punish me basically too hard. Don't be too angry with me. To now where we are is this confident statement about how God will respond. Look at verse 15. For I put my hope in you, Lord. You will answer me, my Lord, my God. For I said, don't let them rejoice over me, those who are arrogant toward me when I stumble. For I'm about to fall. My pain is constantly with me. So I confess my iniquity. I'm troubled or anxious because of my sin. I am troubled by my sin. Are you troubled by your sin? See, this is where David's thinking about his sin and his thinking about God have led him. He's now troubled by his sin, and because he's troubled, he cries out to God in confession. David is no longer trying to hold on to his sin. He isn't hiding some sin in the back of the pantry by the good chocolate where no one else can find it. He's not filing it away in a special hidden file to be retrieved later just in case he really needs it. He's done with it. He's giving it up. He doesn't want it anymore, and he's asking God to help him do what he can't do on his own. His confidence here is not in his ability to defeat sin, but in God's ability to deliver him from sin. Now, I know that there are some sitting here that are trapped by sin right now. You keep going back to your sin even though it makes you sick. As it says in the book of Proverbs, you're like a dog returning to eat your own vomit. Pretty gruesome. The reason you keep going back is this. You're trying to manage it. You're trying to keep a cobra on a leash and you're shocked when it attacks you. Like you need to beg God this morning to deliver you. You are unable to save yourself. You don't have sufficient strength to kill the cobra or sufficient willpower to resist the vomit. But God will help you. He will answer if you call out to him. God is merciful to sinners. He is aware of our struggles. He is going to answer our cries for help. And finally, God is coming to rescue us. So David opens the psalm asking God for mercy. And he, by the end of the psalm, he's so confident that God will answer him that he's asking God to hurry. Like you don't ask someone to hurry if you think they won't come. 
It's only after they say, okay, I'm coming, that you say, okay, and please hurry. Verse 21, Lord, do not abandon me. My God, do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, my Lord, my salvation. God, hurry to help us. Hurry to be with us. Don't leave us on our own. Did God answer this prayer? Yes, he did. And how did he answer this prayer? Well, he sent his son in human flesh. Jesus Christ hurried from heaven to earth to save sinners. I want you to think about this psalm and the effects of sin. I want you to think about Jesus. Jesus saved us by standing in our place, in the place of sinners. The punishment our sin deserves, the justice, well, Jesus took that. His life was drained out of him as he was beaten and crucified. His friends and family, they deserted him. His enemies took advantage of him. When he stood before the officials, he did not say anything, but was silent. We are saved from our sin because Jesus took our sin upon himself. In Jesus, God hurried to save us. So if you're not a Christian, Jesus will rescue you from your sin and judgment today, this moment, if you'll cry out to him in confession and ask for mercy. If you are a Christian, Jesus is going to continue to rescue you from your sin and from your temptation. Just simply call on him for help. Three years ago, a man in the Czech Republic was killed by the lion he kept in his backyard. Now, my response when I heard about it, it's probably similar to most people's response, I thought. Of course, if you keep a pet lion in your backyard, eventually your dead body will be found in your backyard. And it was. Sin is like a lion. Unconfessed sin in your life is like a pet lion in your backyard. It will eventually kill you. Now, it may seem peaceful, even playful. It might even seem exciting at times. You may convince yourself that it's tame, that you've got it under control, but one day you will realize you're wrong, and it may be too late to do anything about it. Now is the time to get rid of it. Now is the time to stop playing around. Call out to Jesus for help to kill the lion before it kills you. Jesus is merciful. He is listening, and he will hurry to rescue you. Pray with me. Father, I pray right now specifically for one person, the person who's sitting here right now, miserable because of their sin. Now, maybe they don't admit they're miserable because they're hoping that it's going to get better, but deep down their sin is crushing them. It is suffocating them. They're anxious. They're worried. Maybe it's affecting them physically. Maybe they even made some decisions in the past. They were going to do something about it, but they've kept it hidden away, tucked away, ready to return to it. And I pray for them this morning. Deliver them. Hurry to rescue them. Help them to see the freedom and the forgiveness and the the wholeness that comes from confessing their sin. Assure them of your mercy. Awaken their dead heart to the truth that 
that you have stood in their place, Jesus stood in their place so that they could receive the life that only he gives. Lord, rescue someone this morning, I ask. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquaverina, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.